0: This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCweb.org. Father in heaven, we are beginning a journey this morning that will be all morning and this afternoon to look at Jesus. There is no better one to look at. We long to be effective soul winners for you. We long to go back to our churches and make a significant difference for your kingdom. And as we look at the lovely Jesus, may we see his pattern of ministry, and may our lives be changed because we have looked at him. We thank you so much for the opportunity today to come to study your word and to have that sense of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Let me tell you a little bit about class, what we're going to do, and then we'll just launch right into our class. Beginning this morning, and for two hours this morning, and then for two hours this afternoon, we're going to look at Jesus' pattern of ministry. During the first hour, I will introduce that pattern based on Jesus' ministry in the New Testament. And then right after that, my wife's going to share how to apply those principles and to a local church. We'll continue that this afternoon and we'll look at the church as a health center. We'll look at examples of how to make your church everything that God wants it to be. So thank you very much for joining us and we will launch right into our topic. Dr. Lewis Evans was a medical missionary in the United States and he had a great desire to lead others to Jesus through his practice he took a short-term mission trip and went out to Korea. He was going to spend about six weeks in Korea assisting in medical missionary work. And he met a colleague of his who was a missionary in Korea, and they traveled way, way back up into the bush. And this medical missionary friend of Dr. Evans had been working in this primitive village for many, many years, whereas Dr. Evans was coming on a short-term mission trip. His friend was located there permanently in Korea. That particular day, Dr. Evans was going to assist his friend in a very challenging stomach operation. Now, the operation wasn't going to be done in a hospital because, of course, there were no hospitals in that primitive village. The operation was going to be done in a tent it was hot, I mean really hot. And as they began the operation in that tent, the dedicated medical missionary physician, Dr. Evans' colleague, took his knife and of course he slit the stomach and he began gently working on this woman's stomach. He worked for seven hours on this very complicated stomach operation delicately caring for this old peasant woman. And as he continued to work, the heat was stifling, the odors were oppressive, but gently, kindly he worked on this old woman. After seven hours, the medical missionary took a deep breath, looked at Dr. Evans and said, Doc, the operation is over. Let's sew her up. She's going to be okay. So they sewed her up, and they went back to this physician's modest office. And Dr. Evans looked at him, and he said, I want to know, how much money do you make for an operation like this out here in the bush? If I operated on a woman like that in my sophisticated hospital with all my technology in the United States, it would be about a $25,000 operation. How much do you make out here in the bush for an operation like this? The seasoned medical missionary had tears in his eyes, and he reached down into his desk drawer and pulled out something from the bottom drawer. He held up an old, dirty, dented copper coin worth about 25 cents and he said to Dr. Evans well the first thing I get is this this woman came in here about two weeks ago I examined her I found that she had a very complex disease tumor in her stomach as you saw and that if I didn't operate she would die and she asked me doctor how much is the operation gonna cost I have this amount And he said, I took that old dirty copper coin and I put it in my hand, that 25 cents, not $25,000. And I said, Madam, that is the right price. It's just enough. You come for the operation. So, Doc, the first thing I get for this operation, seven grueling hours in the oppressive sun, is this old dirty, dented copper coin. But the second thing I get is the conscious awareness that Christ is working through these fingers to heal one of his children. That is medical missionary work. What's medical missionary work? Now, when we use the term medical missionary work, it's confusing to a lot of people. You think medical. I may not be a nurse. I may not be a doctor. I may not have any medical training. So medical, that leaves me out, number one. missionary. That implies that you travel to the far-flung corners of the earth. That leaves me out number two. I better leave the class and go to another class because I'm not medical missionary. What is medical missionary work in the New Testament? What is medical missionary work in the writings of Ellen White? Simply defined medical missionary work is this. It is lovingly meeting the needs of people around you in the name of Jesus, because you're concerned about their needs physically, mentally, and spiritually, and you long to lead them to Christ. So what is medical missionary work? You and I are medical missionaries. We've come to a time, we're told, that every member of the church should take up medical missionary work. And what is medical missionary work? It's lovingly meeting the needs of of the people around you. It's sharing the goodness and the grace of God. It's looking out of yourself to other people. Medical missionary work can be as something as simple as making a loaf of bread and, 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 a, and a bowl of soup or borscht and taking it to a neighbor that's sick. Medical missionary work can be as something as simple as going to a person who's depressed and getting your arms around them and and telling them that Christ loves them and praying for them. It It can be something like holding a cooking school or a stress management program in a church or getting involved in a health expo. So medical missionary work is very broad. It is the loving ministry of Jesus Christ. I want to walk you through the Gospel of John. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it. In the Bible, there's something called the law of first mention. What is the law? Everybody, it's the law of what? First mention. Again, the law of first mention. What is the law of first mention in the Bible? The law of first mention says that when something is mentioned first in the Bible, very often that provides an outline for what's going to come later. Let me give you two examples of the law of first mention. First is the Sabbath. Where is the Sabbath mentioned first in the Bible? Where is that mentioned first? Genesis, at creation. And God says at Genesis that he blessed the Sabbath, sanctified it, and rested upon it. So you have the law of first mention. The Sabbath is introduced in Genesis, then it's expanded. Take the book of Daniel. You have Daniel 2, where that gives you the history of the empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then it's expanded on in Daniel 7, expanded on in Daniel 8. That's the law first mentioned. So you look where something is mentioned first in the Bible. When you go to the Gospel of John, what are the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John? Let's go to John chapter 1. First words that Jesus speaks the first words that John record are incredibly powerful because those first words are a question that Jesus asks and in those first words Jesus introduces an explosive principle of growth and medical missionary work so you look at John chapter 1 and we're looking there at verse 38 two disciples are following Christ in verse 37 and they listen to Jesus speak. Jesus sees them following him in verse 38 of John 1. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? Now it's very easy to skip over those words. But those words, what do you seek, outline the philosophy of Jesus' ministry. They're the first words he speaks. What do you seek? Jesus was more interested in the needs of people than his own needs. What are you seeking? Are you seeking physical help, healing from a disease? What are you seeking? Are you seeking relief from discouragement and depression? What are you seeking? Are you seeking peace of mind and eternal life? What are you seeking? Are you seeking joy and happiness in your life? Jesus pattern of ministry was never to begin where he was but always to begin where they were somebody said anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package Jesus pattern of ministry was to find a need and to meet it so Jesus was looking for needs in a secular society in a society that is often turned off on religion. In a society where people feel that religious people are hypocritical, they, have, they are Bible thumpers, they just want to jam doctrine down your throat. That's the idea of postmodern people. The idea is that religious people are quite narrow-minded. In a society like that, people are disarmed when you come to them unselfishly, kindly, gently, longing to meet the needs in their heart. So Jesus said, what seek ye? What are you seeking, ma'am? What are you seeking, sir? Jesus was constantly looking into the hearts and minds of others. Now, when you look through the Gospel of John, John 2, John 3, John 4, and John 5 describe four basic needs. The four basic human needs that each person has. In John 2, we have a case history. In John 3, we have a case history. John 4 and 5 are case histories. These are case histories of the four basic human needs. And it shows how Jesus met those needs. In John chapter 6, Jesus had so fundamentally and basically met human needs that they wanted to make him king. And and we're going to look at that. So let's look at these human needs that Jesus meets. Because true medical missionaries look out of themselves. They're sensitive to the needs of others. And we break down prejudice and we break down the walls and the barriers as we attempt to meet the basic needs. So the principle that we're looking at is the what-seek-ye principle. The what-seek-ye principle. That we're looking at what others do the, the needs of others? What are you seeking? Incidentally, did you notice the next thing Jesus said? He said to them, what seek ye? And in verse 39, they said, well, we want to know something about you. Where do you live? What's your life like? And Jesus said, come and see. That's quite fascinating. You must first come and see before you ever can go and tell. You must first come and see before you ever go and tell. Jesus said, if you want to know something about me, come and see me. Watch me as I touch the eyes of the blind, and they're open. Watch me as I touch the ears of the deaf, and they're unstopped. Watch me as I break the bread and feed the 5,000. Watch me as I heal the sick. Watch me as I deliver the demoniacs. You want to know something about me, Jesus said. My life is one of sacrificial service. It's one of meeting people's needs. You come and see. So this morning, that's what we want to do. We want to come and see. We want to take a look at Jesus. We want to see his ministry, see the care that he had for people, see the compassion that he had for people. John chapter two, three, four, and five show us Jesus meeting basic human needs. We go to John chapter two. What is the basic human need in John chapter two? Well, you know the story well. It's the story of the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. The basic human need there is a social need. How would you feel if you were just getting married anybody here married within the last two years anybody married wow I knew I'd pull that off with some young people here today you married in the last two years okay now suppose it is your wedding day and it's that marvelous day and you go to the reception and you have a great reception in the church and the ladies have made whole wheat bread and vegetarian chicken sandwiches and you have gotten the sparkly non-fermented wine there and it's a marvelous time you've got the beans and the potatoes you've got everything there in the spread and you were anticipating 53 people to come to your wedding, and you counted the reception numbers carefully, and they have come to that little church. But because you are so popular, and because you are so well-known, people have come from churches around, and there are 122 people. (laughs) And you've prepared the vegetarian sandwiches, one and a half sandwiches for each of those 53 people that you thought were going to come and 122 came and the conference president, who is your father's best friend, is standing in line and all the vegetarian sandwiches are gone and there's nothing in the soup dish any longer and nothing in the beans dish and the, and the, and the unfermented grape juice is gone. How embarrassed would your parents be if they ran out of food, young lady, at your wedding? And if there are a hundred people still in line it would be the social embarrassment of the century, right? This was a small village in Cana of Galilee. There probably were less than 300 people in the village and probably a couple hundred at that wedding. And that host was incredibly socially embarrassed because wedding feasts in ancient times were the center of the village. The rabbis had a saying, and here's what the rabbi's saying was. Everyone from 5 to 75 follows the marriage drum. You know, when they'd go through the villages drumming, the marriage is here, the marriage is here, the wedding is here. And then everybody would come out and begin following, and they'd go to the bride's home, and they would have this great reception. Well, there's this incredible social embarrassment. What does John 2 teach us? It teaches us that Jesus is concerned when people are socially embarrassed Jesus takes the water and turns it into wine now somebody said Pastor Mark you got to talk a little bit about is this fermented or unfermented wine I'll show you in just a moment or two how this has to be unfermented wine and it cannot be fermented I want you to take your Bible and take a look at something here notice in John chapter 2 it says on the third day now in John Why was the Gospel of John written? The Gospel of John written was written according to the last verse in the Gospel of John so that you'd believe that Christ was Messiah and Christ was Savior. Notice how John 2 starts, on the third day. When you read an expression on the third day, where does your mind go immediately? Where does your mind go immediately? Destroy this body and in what? Three days, I'll raise it up. So third, when you read about third day, immediately your mind goes to the what? Cross of Calvary. We're keeping our reading chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. What does Cana mean? Wickedness, wedding, Cana. Jesus crucified on the cross. Jesus united to his people. First miracle, Cana, points forward to the cross. We keep going, the mother of Jesus was there. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, where was his mother? Where was his mother? Was she there? Come on now. Was she there? Sure, she was there. So in the first verse you have four pointers. Let your eyes drop down to verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? You remember, they run out of wine. His mother comes to him and says, They have no wine. And he says, What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Every time in the Gospel of John you read the expression, My hour my hour, my hour. What is it referring to? The hour of what? The hour of the cross, the hour of his death. Keep your finger in John 2. What does he say in John 2 verse 4? My hour is not yet come. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. What does he say to his disciples in John 17? You are looking here. John 17 verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, John 17, verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has what? What did he say in John 2? My hour has not what? Come. But in John chapter 17, he says, my hour has what? Come. If you look at John 2, there are at least seven expressions that point forward to Calvary in John 2. Jesus in John 2 says, it's on the third day. The gospel says, destroy this body, and on the third day I'll raise it up again. Point it to the cross. Cana, center of wickedness. Jesus is crucified in the center of two thieves, the center of wickedness. Jesus' mother is there at John 2. Jesus' mother there at the cross. He says, my hour is not yet come in John 2. John 17, he says, my hour is now come. Uh, in, at the cross, they put a spear in his side. What comes out? Water and what? Blood. What is, when you have the communion and you have the wine in the communion, it represents what? The blood of Christ. What is John 2 all about? John 2, Jesus is saying, I'm going to change the old water of Judaism into the great wine of the gospel. I'm going to turn the old water of Judaism into the newness and the freshness in the wine of the gospel. The wine at in John 2 has to be unfermented. Why? Because Christ's blood was not sin-tinged, and fermentation is spoilage, and fermentation is a sign of sin. So it couldn't have been fermented wine because it perverts the very symbol of the pure blood of Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross for you and for me. So when you look at John chapter 2, Jesus there is giving an illustration that when he hangs on Calvary's cross and his blood is poured out on that Calvary's cross that is blood that is not sin tinged it is blood that is not contaminated with sin Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that's why the wine of the communion service cannot be fermented because it represents the pure blood of Christ that was shed for our sins now there's another reason why you know that, that was unfermented wine. Just a little aside here, John chapter 2, verse 6. Now there were set there, John 2, verse 6, six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So here you have 20 or 30 gallons in each of those pots of stone. How many pots of stone were there? Six. What six times 20? 120. What's six times 30? 180. How many gallons of wine were there? Between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. How many people were at the feast? The village was probably 300. There were between 150 and 200 people at the feast, probably. So if I got 100 and... Let's average between 120 and 180. Let's say there's about 150 gallons of wine. 150 people there. They drink it all up. Uh Uh-oh. How much wine does it take to get drunk? Can you get drunk on half a gallon? Yeah, these are Adventists, they don't know nothing about this stuff. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. My friends who know tell me, I do a lot of evangelism. My friends who know tell me, I knew a half of you knew, but you don't want to say. My friends who know tell me, you can get drunk on a half a gallon easy. You take a gallon of wine and you're so soused. Are you going to say that Jesus produced enough wine To get that whole village drunk, and some guy drives his ox cart off the road and breaks his leg. How'd you break your leg? Well, I went to that great feast that Jesus had, and I got drunk. Some guy goes home with another guy's wife. What happened to you? Well, I just went home with somebody else's wife. I had such much fun at that wedding, I got drunk, and that Jesus... I would not say such blasphemy, would you? That Jesus got all those people drunk? Not at all. So this was not fermented wine. It, the evidence of the text is abundantly plain when you look at it it was the wonderful pure juice of the grape but here's the point in john 2 here's the point that stuff i just told you for the last 7 minutes that was free no extra charge in the class for that here's my point in john 2 christ is sensitive he's incredibly sensitive he is sensitive to the social needs of people Jesus was not so heavenly minded that he was not any earthly good. He was concerned about embarrassment and social needs. Now you go to John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Christ. Nicodemus comes by night. Nicodemus already has the stirring of the Spirit in his heart. Nicodemus already has this spiritual longing in his soul. Nicodemus does not need a cooking school, a stress management program, or a hydrotherapy treatment because Nicodemus already has this spiritual longing. And so he comes to Jesus by night and he says, and Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And what does Christ do? He leads Nicodemus directly into spiritual reality. There are scores of people in postmodern secular society in Europe that have that spiritual longing already. Jesus in John 2 meets a social need. Jesus in John 3 meets a spiritual need. So, where the need is overtly spiritual and you see that that person is longing for divine things and longing for eternity, you can move in very quickly spiritually. We go to John 4. What's the story in John 4? In John, the fourth chapter, we read the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus uses an incredibly different approach with her. Notice Jesus does not begin with this woman with a direct spiritual approach. Notice the contrast between John 2 and John 3. In John 2, Nicodemus is a man. In John 3, she is a woman. Now, that's a brilliant assertion, isn't it? John chapter 2, Nicodemus is a Jew, and she... uh, I'm sorry, John 3. John 3, Nicodemus is a Jew, and John 4, she is a what? Samaritan or Gentile. In John 3, Nicodemus comes by night, and in John 4, she comes by day. Nicodemus is well-respected in John 3, and she is a woman of ill repute in John 4. In John 3, she comes... Nicodemus comes seeking for Jesus. In John 4, she stumbles across Jesus. John chapter 3, Nicodemus is very well known, very wealthy. He's part of the religious establishment. In John 4, she's this woman of ill repute. She's a cast off. She doesn't have any reputation at all. And it's interesting how Jesus approaches her, the strategy that Jesus uses. Look there, please, at John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, then Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea, departed again to Galilee. This is really fascinating stuff. Jesus did not want to enter any competition over souls. Therefore rather than having competition, Jesus left Galilee and came to Judea where he could labor without the competition because he didn't want to have any conflict with John. And when Jesus was so successful and his disciples were baptizing so many people, there was beginning to be a conflict between the followers of John and the followers of Jesus, and a jealousy was coming in, so Jesus had nothing doing. And so Jesus stepped out so he could give John that field so that he could, so John's disciples could continue. In God's work there is no competition. We're on the same team winning people for Christ and the kingdom. Now, look here. Jesus leaves Galilee. Notice verse 4, but he needs to go through Samaria. You do not need to go through Samaria to get to Galilee from Jerusalem geographically. You can go up along the Jordan River. You never go through Samaria. You can go along the Mediterranean Sea. You never go through Samaria, but he needs to go through Samaria. Why? Because Jesus knew that the Samaritan woman, he knew he was guided by the Holy Spirit He may not have known specifically that that woman would be there, but he knew that if he went through Samaria, if he went through Samaria, he'd have contact with the Samaritans and he wanted to share the gospel with them. So Christ goes through Samaria. He comes there. He meets this woman by the well that's called Sychar. Jesus is wearied, verse 6. He sits down by the well. It's the sixth hour. That's noon. It is blazing hot in the Judean, in the Samaritan countryside. It is hot. It's beating down upon him. A woman comes. Now, what does Jesus do? What's Jesus' strategy? Does this woman come who's a woman of ill repute? She has six husbands already. And does Jesus look at her and he says, I know who you are. You're the, you're the woman in town that's sleeping with all these guys. And uh, he said, look, you better not do that or else uh, don't you know how foolish that is? Don't you know the possibility of diseases you're going to get? Don't you know, young lady, that you are lost? Is that the way Jesus begins? How gentle Jesus is. He looks beyond what she is doing. And he recognizes her deeper need. That she doesn't have much self-worth. That she doesn't have much self-esteem. That she's an emotional basket case. That she's emotionally devastated. And so Jesus says to her, I'm kinda thirsty, can you give me something to drink? He asks her for a favor. He shows her dignity. He shows her respect. A Jew would never talk to a Samaritan. He talks to her. A man would never initiate a conversation with a woman like that if the man is a religious teacher and Jesus obviously was. So Jesus breaks social norm. He breaks social custom. And he said, I'd like something to drink. And she is amazed. How can you as a Jew ask me somebody I drink as a Gentile? But she can't refuse him. And as she's getting him that water to drink, he looks at her and he says, you know something? If you really knew who was talking to you, you would know about a water that can satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. Young lady, you're really looking for love. You're really looking for emotional satisfaction and joy and peace. And young lady, there's something a lot deeper than this water. There's a water of life that would quench your soul. She looks at him and says, I think you must be a prophet. He looks back at her and says, why don't you go bring your husband here? I'd like to talk to both of you. Her eyes drop. She looks up and says, I don't have a husband. And he said, I know you already had six people and the guy you're living with is not your husband. But I have something for you that'll satisfy what you've been looking for all your life. I'll meet that emotional need inside. And that woman is so overwhelmed that she leaves her water pot right there and she runs back into that village and tells all the men, I just met a man that told me everything I ever did. And the guys go, oh no, And she says, come and see him. He's satisfied the needs of my heart and he can satisfy the needs of your heart. And they come, they come. In John 2, Jesus meets a social need. In John 3, Jesus meets an emotional need, uh, a spiritual need in John 3. In John 4, Jesus meets an emotional need. Do you see what's happening here? What are the great needs of life that people have? They have social needs. They have spiritual needs, John 3. They have emotional needs, John 4. And here we come now to John, the fifth chapter. John chapter 5. There is, the need in John 5 is not a social need. The need in John 5 is not a spiritual need directly. It's not the, the felt need, it's not spiritual the need in john 6 uh, john 5 is not a social or an, emotion, an emotional need like we had back in john 4 in john 2 you have this social need john 3 you have a spiritual need john 4 you have a so, an emotional need john chapter 5 the need is physical john chapter 5 we look there after this there was a feast of the jews and jesus went up to jerusalem now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. How many of you were with me in the class yesterday and we talked about Bethesda? Ah, some of you. Okay. In the Bible, when you have Beth, does any, what does Beth mean? When you have like, can you think of other cities called Beth in the Bible? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Okay. Now, if you were in the class yesterday, hold back a little bit. Don't give your answer. I know you want to, but anyway. Okay, Beth. Bethlehem What does Beth mean? House of or sign of Lehem is breath, so bread So Bethlehem is the house of bread Or the sign of bread So Jesus the bread of life was born In a city called the house of the baker See. Bethsaida. Beth is house of or sign of Seda is fish So Bethsaida is the house of fish It's a fisherman's village Jesus calls Peter, James and John to be fishers of men In a fisherman's village Okay beth Bethesda Beth is house of or sign of, Esda is mercy. So Bethesda, place of mercy. Here Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda, which is the most despicable place. This is where you come to die. This is where sick people are laying with palsy, head to toe. This is where people are, have no hope. Jesus comes to the place where there is no hope where people are physically dying, and he gives them hope, and that place of despicable death, despondency, and discouragement becomes the place of mercy. It becomes the place of grace. Every time you and I walk to minister to people, we become people of grace, where we take their hopelessness, and it becomes hope again. So we look there at John chapter 5. John 5, it says, verse 3, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. See, they believed in this myth that the water would be stirred up, there was an underground spring, and uh, that they could get into the water and be healed. It was a myth that they believed. And many people were trampled, they were crushed as they were trying to get into that water. And uh, they were hurt even more. So Jesus comes there, he sees the most hopeless case, verse 5 now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years so this man has this infirmity for 38 years he's sick he's shaking from head to toe for 38 years and he's there he sees children go by with their fathers and mothers who are playing games out in the street he can't play with them he sees young lovers go by he can't have that experience he is isolated from family friends he's sick he's dying there is no hope for this man And Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? Incidentally, verse 6, do you want to be made well? That is the question Jesus asks every one of us. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? Do you want to have a new life? All change begins with choice. Where there is no choice, there is no change. Any change you want... Jesus says, Do you really want to give up that habit? Do you really want to be a new person? John chapter 6. Do you want to be made well? The man gives Jesus some excuse. Jesus doesn't even listen to the excuse. He says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. He sweeps aside the excuse. What was the major issue that Jesus was focusing on in John chapter 5? Physical healing. Now, watch this carefully. Jesus doesn't begin by ministering to a social need in John 5 doesn't begin by going directly spiritual and giving a Bible study in John 5 like he did with Nicodemus. Doesn't deal with the man's emotional depression in John 5 like he did in John 4. But Jesus looks at the man's physical needs. There are scores of people that if you do not minister to their physical needs, their mind and heart will never be open. There are scores of people that would never come to my evangelistic meetings but when my wife holds a cooking school they have been reading the literature about a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet they have recognized that diet plays a role in heart disease and cancer they want to lose weight they want to reduce the prospect of diabetes so they come to a nutrition class because they are longing to have a physical need met Jesus met a physical need in John 5, an emotional need in John 4, a spiritual need in John 3, and a social need in John 2. What does this tell you about Jesus? Somebody raise their hand and tell me, what does this tell you about Jesus? What did you learn about Jesus and what we discussed? Yes, ma'am. He met every need, yes. He picked. people up where they are. yes. He picks people up where they are, the most urgent thing that they need. Anybody else? Something about Jesus that impressed you. Way in the back. He can satisfy all needs. Isn't he wonderful? Jesus satisfies all of our needs. Anybody else pick something up? Yes. He knows who needs what. He knows who needs what. Anybody else pick something up? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's interested in all of us, the totality of us, the completeness of us. Jesus is concerned that we are socially alert. He, he's concerned that we are spiritually in tune with him. He's concerned that we're emotionally whole and that we're physically whole. Yes. Yeah, he's a holistic God. Yes. Jesus didn't mind the reason they came to him as long as they did. Great point. I, I, you probably missed that. Let me repeat it. Jesus did not mind. Jesus wasn't concerned the motive that they came as long as they came. Now, let's define the difference between felt needs and ultimate needs. The difference between a felt need and an ultimate need. A felt need is the need the person perceives they have at that moment, okay? Okay? So a felt need is the need a person perceives they have at that moment. That perception might be, I'm overweight. My doctor told me I need to lose weight. I have no interest in religion, but here's some weight management course at the church. I'm going to go there. I don't care if it's a church or not. I'm going to go. That's my felt need. I'll give you an illustration of felt need. We were in the city of Chicago planting a new church when we were working with Andrews University a number of years ago. And I conducted a class on the book of Daniel. Lavena came to that class on the book of Daniel because she was at a point in her life where she really was very interested in understanding Bible prophecy. So she came to class. Her husband never came. When I talked to her, and we got acquainted about her husband, she said, Pastor, my husband has no interest in religion. We had come to the Catholic Church. We had a son, a little boy, four or five years old, who died suddenly. The priest never visited us to comfort us about the death of our son. But sometime after the death of our son, they were building a new church, like a new cathedral. And the priest came to our house couple weeks after the death of our son talked nothing about it and really strongly appealed to my husband to give money for the new cathedral my husband became so angry that he said if that is what faith is like i don't want anything to do with it so he has not come to church for many 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 years then she said but the problem is he's got excessive stress in his life and his stress level is so high He's seeing the doctor for a variety and on a variety of medications. I said, well, that's very interesting. I am going to be teaching for business people in Chicago and others a stress management seminar. Why don't you invite your husband? So she went home and said, you know, the guy who was teaching the Daniel seminar, he said, I'm not interested in the Bible. She said, I know, but he's teaching a stress management seminar. Why don't you go? He said, okay. So he began to come. As he came to the stress management seminar, I began to assign reading for them. And one of the things I assigned was some chapters. I gave them a copy of the book, Life at Its Best. It was an abridged edition of Ministry of Healing by Ellen White. And there were certain chapters on stress that I assigned. One night before he went to bed, he was reading one of these chapters by Ellen White on help in daily living, how to relate in daily living. It's one of the best things for relieving stress and how to relate to daily living. So he's reading the chapter. There's all kind of references to Christ in the chapter, all kind of references to the Bible in the chapter, and his wife could not stand it any longer. So she looked over at him and she said, Honey, I, I, I notice you're reading that material that Mr. Finley gave you, and... It has all kind of Bible references and Jesus. I thought you've given up the church and all that stuff. Why are you reading that? I don't think I would have taken that approach, but anyway. His answer was classic. He looked at her and he said, If this can help me reduce my stress, I don't care where it comes from. We ultimately baptized him and her. He had a felt need. The felt need was to relieve stress. So Jesus was a master at taking people from where they were in their felt needs and leading them to have their ultimate needs satisfied. The felt need is the need the person perceives they have emotionally, physically, spiritually, socially. Those are the felt needs when a church becomes a center of health and healing that my wife will talk to you about a little later. Incidentally, what time is it right now? Quarter 10? What, oh, what time? 10.30. 10 10 30. Okay. I can go. Okay. Somebody raise their hand when it's five minutes till 11. Okay. Because we're going to take a break at five minutes till 11. Okay. So, There's a difference between a felt need and an ultimate need. The felt need is the need the person perceives they have. What's the ultimate need? The ultimate need in every heart is for God. Now, here's something that's very important for you to keep in mind. Take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. This idea that we live in a postmodern culture and that people have little interest in God or faith is contrary contrary to the way that we were made. Take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. Notice, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. What does it say God has put in every heart that he creates? in Ecclesiastes chapter 3? He has put what in their hearts? Eternity. What's the word in German in Ecclesiastes 3? He's put what in their hearts? What does it say in German? Give me the German word. What is it? Evershteid. What does that mean? What's literally? Is it literally eternity? Eternity? What is the word? Who has a French Bible? What's the word in French? He's put what in their hearts? What is it? Eternity. Yeah. Okay, he's put eternity in their hearts. Yes, what do you have? Put put what in their hearts? Put the world in their hearts. Not a good translation. Yeah, not a good... King James is good many times, but King James misses some of the time. And so the word actually in the Hebrew is this idea of he's put eternity. This idea, this longing for eternity. Um, and... Uh, It's very interesting. He's put eternity in their hearts. What does that mean? Now compare that with John 1. Compare that with John 1. Go over to John 1 and verse 9. John 1, verse 9. Once you understand this principle in soul winning, whatever people, whatever need they come with, the need may be physical, the need may be mental, the need may be social, the need may be spiritual whatever need they come with, there is something else going on in their hearts. There is that longing for eternity in every heart. Whoever, however secular the person is, however postmodern the person is, you remember what Augustine said. He said, Lord, our hearts will never find rest until they find rest in thee. In other words, there is something in the human heart that longs for eternity. There's something in the human heart that longs for life after death. There's something in the human heart. You you see it in the Egyptian culture, you see it in the Babylonian culture, you see it in every culture in the world. I've been with primitive cultures. In the, in the midst of the jungles. And uh, I remember when I was only 21 years old, I was in the jungles of Brazil with a primitive Indian tribe, lost in the jungles in fact, uh, taking an ambulance from the Red Cross and we broke down in the middle of the jungle, 500 miles from any major civilization. They had to fly a helicopter in to us then. But I remember the Krakati Indian tribe and there was this longing in their heart for eternity you know primitive tribes because that's the way we were made that's the way we were created people can deny it they can turn their back on it but when people come to your health programs they may come to reduce their blood pressure they may come to reduce their cholesterol they may come to to an exercise program to get fit they may come to a family life program it may seem they have no interest in spiritual things But here's what you know that they may not know, that there's eternity in their hearts. Every secular person I talk to, I know that that's in their heart. I know that God is working there through his Holy Spirit. John 1, verse 9. That, now most translations will say that one, referring to Jesus. That, or that one Jesus, was the true light which gives light to Next two words, what are they? Gives light to, next two words, what are they? Every man, woman, child, every person who comes into the world. So every person that is coming into this world, Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit is working on their heart to reveal the light of truth to them. Isn't that incredibly good news? When I walk down the streets here and take my walk for an hour every day so I can be healthy... And walking along the Danube River, and I see those people. I'm not thinking in my mind, oh, these people are postmodern. There's nobody interested here. I'm thinking, praise the Lord, you put eternity in their hearts. They don't know it. They don't know it, but eternity is in their hearts. The thing that they're longing for, the emptiness in their soul. So they will come to your health meetings. They will have a felt need. But what do you know as a soul winner? What do you know as a soul winner? That God has put what? Eternity in their hearts. What do you know as a soul winner based on John chapter 1 and verse 7 to 9? That, th- that Christ, the light, is lighting every man, woman, and child. So you begin to minister to the needs that they have, knowing that there are deeper needs that they have that they don't even know they have. But as you share with them gently, kindly, lovingly the principles of eternal life, they will discover the fulfillment to their deeper needs. There's a statement in the writings of Ellen White that is quite impressive to me and uh, where she says in Evangelism, page 513, nothing. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Nothing. What does nothing mean? Well, nothing is not something because if nothing was something, it wouldn't be nothing, it would be something. Okay, so nothing is not something. Nothing is nothing, right? All right. Nothing will open doors for the truth like evangelistic medical missionary work. Doors that have been closed to him who merely preaches the gospel will be open to the intelligent medical missionary. That's a powerful statement. Let's analyze it. Nothing will open doors for the truth like gospel medical missionary work. Jesus ministered to people socially, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and as he did, the masses followed him. Why? Because he was so selfless in meeting their felt needs that he earned the right to address their ultimate needs. When you you meet the needs that they have, you earn the right to address their ultimate needs. Nothing, doors that have been closed to him who merely preaches the gospel, I thought if I just preach, people are going to respond. Doors that have been closed to him who merely preaches the gospel will be opened. It doesn't say to the medical missionary, it says the intelligent medical missionary." And you and I are medical missionaries, because how have we defined medical missionary work? Lovingly going out of ourselves to meet the needs of people around us. The night was February 27. The year was 1910. Ellen White was troubled, greatly troubled. That night in vision she saw the cities of the East Coast of America, great cities like New York and Boston. Her mind was then taken by God in vision to the cities in the central part of America, Chicago and down into Los Angeles. and She saw great cities and the multitudes of people and she was troubled with the lostness of these cities. She was troubled that millions of people were lost not knowing Christ. And God, in that vision of February 27, 1910, in, in that dream, gave her a vision. And he gave her a vision in which, that she wrote out the next morning. And as she wrote it out, she sent a letter to conference presidents. And she said, I was shown that we should organize companies of workers, teams of workers, that there should be a decided, these are her words, a decided change in our past methods of working, that rather than merely going into a city to preach, there should be a decided change, that we should organize teams of workers, coal porters, and nurses, and doctors, and medical missionary workers, that churches should become the center of influence in a community where people came, to have their needs met of health and healing. And so she outlines this vision of medical missionary work, this vision of care, of love, of sensitivity. She outlines this sense that every Adventist is called to be a medical missionary, to reach out in love, kindness, and compassion. You may not have medical training, but you can reach out in love, kindness, and compassion to people around you. She outlined that in this vision. Little was done around about it for a while, but finally, Elder Roderick Owen and Elder Burden, who were at Loma Linda University, Elder Burden was the business manager, and Elder Roderick Owen was, the, uh, was a Bible teacher. They saw one of the older students that was there, and they sat him down, and Elder Owen said to him, and Elder Burden said to him, look, Brother Tyndall, his name was John Tyndall. Look, Brother Tyndall, Ellen White has had this vision. You are taking the medical missionary course and you're pre- you have a background as a lawyer. We would like you to go and demonstrate this vision. I want to give you an example of one man's ministry, Elder John Tyndall, over 30 years, and tell you a little bit about him. And how God used this man as he applied the principles that we are talking about this morning. As he took the ministry of Jesus to reach hearts and minds and lives. Now you need to know a little bit of background about Elder Tindall. Elder Tindall was not a Christian, not brought up in a Christian home. He was brought up in an atheistic background and he was an attorney. Had an incredible sharp mind. He was working for the state of California. And he was working particularly out in the gold fields. In those times, there was a large gold rush taking place. And uh, he was working for the government to go out and do some assessing of what was taking place in these gold mines. I got to know Elder Tindall in the last years of his life and participated in his funeral, and we spent many, many hours talking. He was the one man that implemented was asked to implement the vision by the prophet. So when I spent time with him, we would walk together. He would tell me stories. I thought, I have a direct link to the prophet of God. This man was the man that was anointed, the man that was chosen to illustrate the great principles of Ellen White's dream in February 27, 1910, when he was asked to go out and do this medical missionary work. Here was his conversion story. As this attorney one night, he was out in the gold fields of California. Ellen White had just written Desire of Ages. And he said he was out there in those gold fields. And, um, you know, in those days, you don't have a lot of radio. In the early 1900s, you don't have a lot of, you don't have television, of course. And people would sit at night after they were penning for gold during the day. And they would read. Well, somebody had a copy of Desire of Ages. And they were reading it out loud around the campfire. And they came to the chapter on the cross of Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He was treated as we deserve so we could be treated as he deserves. He took the condemnation that was ours so we can receive the righteousness that was his. And as he heard the story of the cross, he he went out among the sagebrush, knelt down and gave his heart to the Lord. He said, Lord, if you love me that much, I'm yours. He then went on to take the medical missionary lecture course and theology at Loma Linda. So you have this fellow with a brilliant mind who's an attorney, he's a lawyer, he's a theologian, and he has the medical training of a physician. I mean, what a combination. That's why Elder Burden and Elder Owen saw in this older student, John Tindall, and they said, look, we want you to demonstrate the vision. His wife at the time was not a Seventh-day Adventist in his first evangelistic campaign he baptized his own wife he began to organize teams and he would go into a city work with local churches. They would have medical missionary training programs. These churches would become centers of evangelism. He would stay there for a year and a year and a half, just like the Apostle Paul worked in Ephesus for a year and a half. He wouldn't go in and then come out quickly, but he would stay there. He would train church members. They would learn how to give hydrotherapy treatments. There would be cooking schools in churches. There would be weight management programs. He, Elder Tindall, would go and speak at the police department. He'd speak at the fire department. He'd talk about diet and delinquency. One of his favorite lectures that he would give would be diet and delinquency. He would be welcomed in all the schools. So pretty soon, this man would become a household figure in that community because he was meeting the needs of that community. God blessed him in some incredible ways. When he was in Oklahoma City... He was there and preaching at the same time as Billy Sunday. Now, for those of you in Europe, the name Billy Sunday might not mean a great deal, but Billy Sunday was an evangelist before Billy Graham, and he was drawing large crowds. So the papers, Elder Tindall was there, and they called Elder Tindall. The newspaper called Elder Tindall Mr. Saturday, and they called Billy Sunday Mr. Sunday. So when the, one of the last days of Elder... Tindall's Crusade evangelistic meeting that headlines came out in the Oklahoma City newspaper and this is what they said. Sunday got the crowds. Mr. Sunday got the crowds but Mr. Saturday got the converts. Then it said seven Seventh-day Adventist ministers baptized 77 converts seven at a time. He was often baptizing 100, 150 people in a city. When he came to Indianapolis, Indiana His nurses went out, gave health treatments. They had cooking schools. They had programs to help people off smoking and get them off alcohol. They were giving hydrotherapy treatments. They were giving lectures and doing medical missionary work. And he'd be preaching the Bible and holding his evangelistic meetings. In those days, it was hard to rent a hall, so he pitched his big tent downtown in Indianapolis. He noticed that a businessman was coming into the tent and this businessman would come in and sit in the back, and he'd leave, come in just before the sermon, leave right after the sermon. And so he inquired, who is that man? And they said, he is the richest man in town. He has this huge furniture factory, and trains are coming to get his furniture, shipping it all across America. One day, this man came up to Pastor Tindall, and he said, you know, I'd love you to preach in my church. I have the most prestigious Baptist church in the city. I'd love you to preach there. Well, Elder Tindall said I'd like to preach there, but I, I want to respect your pastor. So maybe we can have a meeting. So the pastor and this rich man met with pastor. Uh, the pastor and the rich man met with Pastor Tindall, and the pastor said to Tindall, "You're a Seventh Day Adventist, aren't you?" And Miss Pastor Tindall said, "Yes, I am." Now remember, he was an attorney, and uh, the. Pastor said, Well, we're not under the old law. And Pastor Tyndall said, Can I read you just one Bible text? Please take your Bible and turn to Romans 8. And the pastor said, I told you we're not under the old law. Just please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. The Bible says, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Pastor, what kind of mind would one have if they were opposed to God's law? Would it be carnal or spiritual? Notice the attorney's questioning. The pastor got so angry, he stamped. Pastor Tyndall simply said, you're getting so angry the carnal mind is not subject to God's law. You've answered your own question, sir. The pastor stumped out. This man was so embarrassed that he didn't know what to do. He continued to come to Pastor Tyndall's meetings. Pastor Tyndall presented the Sabbath powerfully, and this man said to him, "One day they were standing in the parking lot of his factory, of this man's factory, and the trains were coming in. They were loading furniture." And uh, the man said, you see all those trains? They come in every single day. He said, I could not ever close my factory on Sabbath. I'd lose too much money. Elder Tindall looked him in the eye and he said, I only have one question for you. When you answer that, I'll come back and talk to you again. What's more important, your factory or your soul? And he began to walk away. Elder Tindall said he got halfway across the parking lot, and this man yelled, Pastor Tindall, come back. My soul is more important. This man accepted Sabbath. Any of you go to Southern Adventist University? Do I have any Southern Adventist University students here? You went there, Jim. What's the name of the men's dormitory? Talge Hall is the name of the men's dormitory. This man's name was Mr. Talge. He donated the money to build the dormitory at Southern Adventist University. One night, Elder Tindall was in his meeting in Indianapolis describing medical missionary work, describing how every church ought to be a health center, and there should be on the side of that church places where people can come for health treatments and hydrotherapy and cooking schools. Mrs. Tausch was in the audience. She was so impressed, she reached up, pulled off her diamond earrings, pulled off her diamond necklace, dropped it in the offering plate. They sold it. They sold it. And built that health center on the side of the church. When, now Elder Tindall was a man of great faith. He went to Dallas, Texas. We had some little tiny church in Dallas. We didn't have much at all. It was an old ramshackle church, a few members, but the Presbyterians were were merging two churches and they had one church left. And in those days, years and years ago, it was many thousands of dollars. Tindall said, let's go buy that church. They said, we don't have any money. Tindall went to sleep that night and he dreamed that he was fishing and as he dreamed he was fishing a big fish came and bit the line and he kept pulling and pulling and pulling in his dream and he pulled the fish in he came the next day to his team of workers, nurses lay people and he said we are gonna catch a big fish in this series thanks let's go by the church and they said, "Big fish, what do you mean?" He said, "I don't know, but we're going to get a big fish." The next night, Elder Tyndall and his workers were in the nutrition class, and a man 300 pounds walked in. "That's the big fish," Elder Tyndall said. "That man 300 pounds, that's the big fish." It was a meat packer. The guy was a meat packer, and he was very wealthy. Elder Tyndall baptized him. The guy donated seven to 8,000 dollars. They bought that church debt-free. When we step out to do the work that Jesus called us to do, when we do it Jesus' way, when you personally reach out to others with love and care, when your church becomes a health evangelistic center, in the broadest sense, meeting the needs in the community, God will do something for you marvelously for the kingdom
1: let's just go through an introduction before we get there and share some things on health and so god has given us great health insights into his word in fact god's principles of health are throughout the entire bible so it's not like oh you can separate your spiritual health from your physical health they are all throughout the bible And the Bible teaches that we are whole persons, and God wants to save us completely. And that means physically and mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And throughout the Old and New Testaments, physical and mental and spiritual health are all linked together. You can't separate the spiritual from the physical or the physical from the spiritual. And health is a part of God's plan throughout the Scriptures and throughout the Old Testament and begins in the first book right there in Genesis. In fact, Genesis 2.15 says, and let's read this together. The Lord took the man and put him where? In the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So God made us right in the beginning to exercise, right? Right? You see all of the eight principles of health right there in the book of Genesis. And God made us to live outdoors. He never intended that we would be inside in this environment all the time. He intended us to have the fresh air and the sunshine and the exercise right from the beginning. And he gave us good, pure streams and water and what a remedy that is today. And then he gave us good food, good nutritious food. In fact, so good, it was to help us to live forever and ever throughout eternity. In fact, Genesis 1.29 says, "...and God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth." and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. So right in the beginning, the Eden diet was a vegetarian diet. That's what God gave us to help us to live forever and ever. And then God Uh, had made Adam and Eve to fellowship with him, to trust him, to have confidence in him. And they fellowshiped with Jesus face to face, what a an, what, what an great opportunity that was, wasn't it? Can you only imagine what that's going to be like once again, to fellowship with Jesus? Face to face, He made us to trust in Him. So health was a part of God's plan in the book of Genesis, right from the beginning. And health is a plan uh, of God's, and health is a part of God's plan in the book of Exodus. Exodus fifteen twenty six says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord God who heals you. So God says, If you follow my commandments... You're not going to have the same diseases that are on the Egyptians. But what do we have to do? We have to heed God's commands. And so let's travel to Egypt and see if we can study the clues in preventing the world's killer diseases. And yes, the same exact diseases in the 21st century are not new The Egyptians were dying of the same diseases as today. And here in Europe, before coming and doing this seminar, I looked up the major diseases here in in Europe. And they are the same ones that we have in America, the same ones that are around the world because I've done them in Singapore. I've done them in Africa. I've done them in other parts of the world. And they're the same thing. But these were the same diseases that were with the Egyptians. In fact, the arid Egyptian desert preserved the mummified bodies of the royals for thousands of years. And that's how we know what they died of. And studies done on these Egyptian mummies confirm the truthfulness of God's word. So you can study this for yourself and see that the same diseases that the Egyptians died of are the same diseases that we are dying of today. And we, need, we have a message to tell to the world. In fact, we have some inside information from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Dr. Rosalie David of Manchester University in Manchester, England, did studies along with Dr. Claude Ruffet, who did x-rays on 14,000 mummies, and they discovered that it is likely that Ramses II of Egypt died of a massive heart attack. Massive heart attack. Amazing. Amazing. And then there were CT scans that showed that ancient Egyptians suffered from hardening of the arteries. So all of these studies were done on the Egyptian mummies. And Hatshepsut, who was probably Moses' mother, adoptive mother, they did CT scans on her as well. And DNA testing showed, revealed that she probably had Uh, That revealed that obesity, diabetes, liver cancer, uh, plagued her, and her death was in her early in her fifties. And so, the same diseases that we have today, they had. In Egypt, heart disease, cancer, arthritis, obesity, high blood pressure, rheumatism, parasites, and sexually transmitted diseases. The same exact thing that they had in Egypt when God said that if you follow my statutes and my laws, I'm not going to put the same diseases on you that the Egyptians had. And then Deuteronomy 4.40 says, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commands, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you. So you not only affect yourself, my friends, with your health and others in the world with their health, but they're affecting the children after them. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord gives you, is giving you for all time. So you can prolong your days. And if I know that Scripture teaches us that we can prolong our days, I want to know how to do it, right? Don't you? I want to know how to do it. And you know what? The world needs to know how to do it. Because they don't. They don't know what you know. They don't know what we know through the bible and the gift of prophecy so health is a part of god's plan in genesis it's a part of god's plan in exodus and it's a part of god's plan in and it's throughout it's in leviticus it's in deuteronomy it's throughout the old testament but also it's a part of god's plan in the new testament the ministry of jesus gives a powerful example just give one example of the whole person so i want to just give you one but matthew 4:23 says jesus went everywhere teaching in the synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people so jesus not only taught He not only preached, but most of his ministry he spent in healing. And Jesus healed, and we can do that in our ministry today. I believe that we have opportunities that are incredible. And Jesus not only preached, but he healed, and he took an interest in these people. But let's look at one example of Jesus here. The story of the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along in Mark 5, 25 to 35, 34. And this illustrates this illustrates Jesus' interest in the whole person. So take your Bible. I'll put it up on the screen as well. But if you have your Bible, look in there for yourself even in your own language. But let's take a look at this. Mark 5, 25 and 26. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians and she'd spent all she had and she was no better and even grew worse. So here she is plagued with this disease for 12 years. And then the Bible says, when she heard about Jesus when she heard about Jesus. People need to hear about Jesus, right? When she heard about Jesus, when she heard that Jesus could heal, that's what she had heard about. She heard that he not only preached, he not only taught, but she heard he could heal. And she came behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment, for she said... If only I may touch his clothes. If I can just touch his garment, I will be made well. So I just want to touch even the hem of his garment. What faith, right? What faith she had. And immediately, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So immediately she felt like she was healed of her affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Who who touched me? Jesus is saying, Who touched me? But the disciples said to him, I'm sure they said, Master, you see all the throngs, the people thronging you, and you say, and you say, who touched me? I mean, you see all these people, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, she was afraid. She was trembling and fearing, knowing what had happened to her. She came down and fell before him and told him the whole truth. So she she knew something happened in her body, and so she fell down before him, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now I want to share with you three things about this story. I want to share with you the completeness of Christ's ministry. And the completeness that we need to incorporate in our health ministry today, the completeness is, first, the woman with the issue of blood, she desired a cure for her disease, right? Just like many people that we meet today. We have people coming to our health programs, our stop smoking, our stress, our cooking schools, our health programs all the time that have great needs, they have diseases that they need to be cured of. She wanted and had a desire to be cured of her disease. The word for made well in t- verse 28 in the Greek is therapuo. It's meaning the cure for the disease or, or therapy for disease. It's the comes out of that root word therapy, and it means a therapy for the disease. And this has to do with the treatment of disease. But second, the woman experienced what she believed to be healing from the disease. She experienced what she thought was healing for that disease. And the word for healed in verse 29 in the Greek is Imeu, which means freedom from the disease. But this has to do with the physical healing of sickness. So, She thought she was healed from physical sickness, but Jesus gave the the woman much more than she originally sought for. Jesus gave her much more because let's look at the word made well. The word made well in verse 34 in the Greek is sozo. That's the word in the Greek, which is the root word for salvation. Indicating that a physical, mental, and spiritual healing took place. So there is a physical healing, but there is a mental healing or emotional healing, and there is a spiritual healing. And my friends, we have the opportunity in our churches. To not only heal people and help people physically, but to heal them spiritually as we give an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone may accept spiritually, they may not all accept uh, uh, Jesus spiritually, but they will, there will be some who will. And we are looking for those people because not everyone that Jesus healed physically accepted him spiritually, right? But he still healed them. So someone says, do you have an ulterior motive when you conduct a cooking school? Yes, of course Jesus did, didn't he? He said to the woman at the well, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water I will give you, you'll never thirst. And so even if people never accepted Jesus, I would still want to help them to live a more abundant life, to live 10 or 12 years longer here. But the ultimate goal is to introduce them to Jesus and to a spiritual health. And following the example of Jesus... The New Testament church met the needs of people in Jesus' name, and they had a concern for the whole person physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And my friends, that is the same thing that we should have a burden for today. Christ's method alone, we are told, will give us true success in reaching the people. So first, Jesus mingled with men as one who desired their good. And we must mingle with people if we really desire their good. If we never invite anybody to our churches who don't know Jesus, then we can never help them, right? So first, we must mingle with them. Then he showed sympathy for them. You can show a lot of sympathy to people who come to your cooking schools, believe me, and they already come with heart disease. They already come because they have cancer. They already come because they have a bad case of diabetes. Yes, and Jesus ministered to their needs, and he won their confidence, and you will win their confidence in health programming, I can tell you. And then you can bid them like Jesus, like they did follow me. Jesus did. Yes, so Jesus' method. And we are to do the same work that the great medical missionary undertook in our behalf. So we are to do the same work that Jesus did. And that was to heal people physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And growing churches, if you're a growing church, a dynamic church, then you also will meet the needs of varied people groups. You will meet the physical and mental and emotional and spiritual needs. We will do the very same thing that Jesus and his disciples did in the New Testament. So health is a part of the Old Testament. Health is a part of the New Testament. But health is also a part of God's plan in the proclamation of his last day message. It's It's part of the last day message, my friends, Testimonies, volume 759 says, as the right hand of the third angel's message, as the right hand of the third angel's message, God's methods of treating disease will open doors for the entrance of present truth. I have seen this all around the world. And what we're talking about, my friends, is not just something that you use in America. America. It's not just something even for Europe. It's for Africa. It's for the islands of the sea. It's for around the world because God's principles work around the world. They're not limited. And the, what we're going to be talking about today work everywhere around the world. God has a message for his last day church for their own health and a message Of health to give to the world. So it's not only to help us, but it's to help the world. And I want to share with you the story of God leading his last day church to an understanding of uh, the laws of health, because it's a thrilling one. Have you studied and uh, learned how our health message even started? Read it. It is a thrilling one. And the vision given to Ellen White on June 6, 1863, called for radical changes in the personal living habits of the church members. And so the vision also gave rise to the development of the Seventh-day Adventist medical work, which now spans the globe. So this vision was a very critical and very important vision that Ellen White had. First reason that it was given was to improve the health of our pioneer leaders. They did not know the health message. Some of them were smokers. Some of them had such poor health they could hardly function. In fact, they were staying up till the wee hours of the night studying the Word of God, and many of them suffered from bad health. And when J.N. Andrews came as the first missionary in 1874 to right here in Europe, in Switzerland, his health was very, very poor. In fact, he said he was only 34 years old, and he said, "'My general health was easily exhausted.'" And I found it difficult to perform the labor which devolved on me as a preacher. In fact, J.N. Andrews said, my health is so poor that I can hardly function. My health is not good. And so I, I, have, a, I have difficulty. So the early message that was given to the church was given to even help our early our early pioneers. In fact, their bodies often labored under the load of overwork, disease, and a general lack of knowledge of health. They did not know some of the things that, or many of the things that we know today through uh, the, not only the Bible. They had the Bible, but they didn't have this extra insight. And God knew that he needed to give this to his last day church. And in his mercy, God sent a messenger with a message to save the lives of these early Adventist leaders so they could powerfully proclaim his last day message. So that first vision was given one reason was to um, help the health of our own believers, our own early workers, our own early pioneers. So that was to. Help protect their health. And then, sef- second, because of the current fads. Have you read or studied the current fads in the 1800s and what they were? There was a general lack of basic knowledge on true science of healthful living in the mid-1800s. They did not even have some of the scientific evidence and things that we have today. Now there are fads today as well, and we have to beware of that because health is a balance. And that's what it means. It means being balanced in every area. But medical author- many medical authorities followed even these latest health fads, and so, and very interesting to know that just like in Egypt, that Moses going to the university and the medical school of his day in the medical university did not follow all the fads of the Egyptians, but wrote what he knew that we needed in Scripture which was often contrary to the fads. The same thing was today for God's last day uh, people and his last day message that God gave this message and she did not follow the fads. She did not follow, although there were some things that the world was doing that were correct and she wrote about those and there were other things that were fads that were not. Uh, born of heaven that she uh, wrote against. And so what were some of these uh, fads? What was the medical care really like in the 1800s? And this was a time When the Advent movement was just growing, it was just beginning. And what were some of these fads? Let's take a look at them. Dr. Worthington Hooker wrote a medical handbook in 1858 in which he recommended mercury as a remedy to treat chronic diseases and then bleeding uh, if used judiciously. And you remember our first president of the United States of America, George Washington, died from bleeding. They thought that this was a medical cure to bleed them. And that was a fad in those days. And then uh, Dr. Worthington Hooker also said, use alcohol as a treatment of disease to help people and patients sleep. And then he said quinine for colic and intermittent fevers. And then he prescribed the use of tobacco as a remedy for ailing lungs. Now everywhere I go around the world in the airports today, in all of Europe, in Singapore, and in uh, uh, all around the world where we've traveled, every time I go into the airport and see a carton of cigarettes, in fact, I've taken many pictures. It says, "Smoking kills." Smoking causes cancer. She wrote in the 1800s when they were using smoking and tobacco as a remedy that smoking and tobacco is a slow, insidious, most malignant poison. How did she know that it was a malignant, cancerous poison? Today we know that through scientific studies, but she said that back there because God gave insights to his church. And so we have... And they discussed the benefits of breathing freely, of cigar smoke. And so she spoke against this because God showed her these things. And then drugs were prescribed as a cure for disease, every and any kind of drug. And that's why she had to write about the true remedies, not drugs. But now that doesn't mean that we never use a drug or administer a drug. But it means that if that's all we're doing, she, all, she says that many of the people die simply because of the drugs, because they were administrating every and any kind of drug in the 1800s. And it was in this setting of ignorance of the laws of health that God gave Ellen White messages on health reform. So get the setting. This setting was uh, a setting where they were prescribing things that were not good for our health, but bad for our health. And God showed her the good things. So first, to improve the health of our pioneers. And second, because of the current health fads. And third, to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. And that it would be used as an entering wedge. It would be used as the right hand of the gospel. And we have seen that in our own ministry around the world. And so it was in Otsego, Michigan. In Otsego, Michigan on June 6, 1863. The same year that we became Seventh-day Adventists. You see, we were Adventists, even during the 1844 movement, we were Adventists, and they were Methodists and Baptists and all kinds of Christians that believed in the Adventist movement, and they were Adventists. But then, as Joseph Bates and Ellen and James White, and they studied the Scriptures, then they became Sabbatarian Adventists, right? Right? And then it was in 1863 when we became Seventh-day Adventists. And in this same year, God gave Ellen White the health message. And she says in volume one, page 486, the health reform, I was shown. I was shown. In other words, who showed her? God showed her, I was shown, is a part of the third angel's message and is just as closely connected with it as the arm and the hand with the human body. So just as uh, important uh, is the health message to the three angels' message is the hand and the arm to the body. We need our hands, right? Right? and they're connected to our body. And that is the same importance of the three angels' message with the health message. And so here are a few uh, excerpts. She says, I saw it was a sacred duty to attend to our health. So we needed to attend to our own health, but help also the health of others. and then she says, it is not safe nor pleasing to God to violate the laws of our health and then ask him to cure us of our health and keep us from disease when we're living contrary to our prayers. In fact, some have asked, why doesn't God heal? Now that's another whole class and another whole subject. But basically speaking, she says, the reason that God does not heal heal many people today is because of one reason, that it would not glorify God because they would go back and do the same thing that caused the disease in the first place. That they would go back and do the same very thing that caused the disease. So then God is not glorified in that, so he doesn't choose to heal. Now, God does choose to heal some people. Some may be a gradual healing, some may be an instant healing, and some may be healed in the resurrection. And I recognize, my friends, and as we talk about some very specific things this morning and this afternoon, I recognize that there are environmental and, uh, and, and, uh, and hereditary there are hereditary and environmental factors and that we have to contend with those. We live in a world of sin and so we can't answer why some people get sick and some people don't but we do know that there are some things that can keep us healthier and we're going to talk very specifically about those here in this class. And so God wants to heal, but he needs also to know that he's going to be glorified. And in this vision, God revealed the relationship between lifestyle habits and our health. And we have medical enlightenment, my friends, a whole century in advance. We are a very privileged people to have these wonderful books because you see there's no difference in inspiration from the biblical writers and Ellen White. There, the difference is, is that the Bible was written for all time and the, and the writings, the gift of prophecy was written for end times. And so there's no difference in inspiration. And so we have medical advancement. We have medical enlightenment a whole century in advance. And so, what are those true remedies? What are the true remedies? What can people use all over the world that's practical for them? What are these remedies? God revealed the benefits of lifestyle practices and true remedies in Ministry of Healing, page 127. She says, pure air, sunlight, abstemiousness. What does that mean? That means temperance, right? What does temperance mean? Temperance means abstaining from all those things that are harmful, like tobacco, alcohol, drugs, And yes, even caffeine. All of those things that are harmful to our health and moderately using that which is good. That's what temperance truly means. And then rest and exercise, proper diet, the use of water, trust in divine power. These are the true remedies. These are God's true remedies for disease. If we really want to fight disease, if we want to help people that are coming to our health programs know how they can fight disease, these are the remedies. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that we never have some drugs that are administered or surgeries or medical help. Our children are all in the medical field. Our oldest daughter is a physician. Our second daughter is a registered dietitian, and our son is a a, a PA or a physician assistant. They're all in the medical field. And so, yes, we need people in the medical field, but these are the true remedies. These are the true remedies. And Ministry of Healing continues to say that every person should have a knowledge of nature's remedial agencies and how to apply them. So that means that you and I both need to know how to apply these remedies, how to use them, how to help people that are coming to our churches. You see, when our churches are open, when our churches Uh, are so actively involved in health ministry that they say, wait a minute, what if your church was closed down tomorrow? Would the public and the people all around that church say, no, you can't close down that church. Why, the Seventh-day Adventist church is helping us. They're helping us with off tobacco and alcohol. They're helping us with our families, with family ministries. They're helping us even reduce cancer. They're helping us reduce heart disease. And we're going to share some very specific things in this class this afternoon of how we can actually help people reduce Cancer and how to actually reverse heart disease. There's only one way to reduce, uh, to reverse heart disease. We're going to share that this afternoon. But we need to know how to use these remedies. And those who persevere in obedience to her laws, these laws that we just read about, all these principles, will reap the reward in health of body and health of mind. So we will not only have health of body so that our bodies will be healthy, but we'll have our minds so that we can accept spiritual things. One of the reasons that people have a difficulty in spiritual things is because their physical body is diseased. And so we need to have... So once we understand these health principles the Spirit will lead us to share them with others. So once we know these these principles, we will share them with others. And so the church becomes a center of health and healing. The church becomes a center of health and healing. So why should we have a health ministry? I'm going to just give you one this morning, and then we're going to go into this deeply this afternoon. But Health ministry gives us an opportunity to restore people's health. Let me give you a good example. Many people have broken health, and they need to have it restored. They already have broken health. Let me give you uh, an illustration. There was a famous old monastery situated on the side of a cliff, and it overlooked the emerald blue waters of the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. And a tourist wanted to visit this beautiful monastery. This beautiful monastery on the side of a hill and it overlooked the Mediterranean. And there was a visitor that wanted to visit this monastery. But there was one problem. The only way up was in this old wicker basket hoisted up by a rope. So you had to get into the basket and it was hoisted up by a rope. And so as the Taurus got in the basket, he asked the monk only one question. He said to the monk, how often do you change the rope? Good question, right? Good question? Good question. How often do you, before I get in this old wicker basket, I want to know how often do you change the rope? And he said, oh, don't worry. We change it every time it breaks. We change it every time it breaks. And you know what, my friends? People have broken health, and they want to change it when it's often too late. I know. We have people coming to our programs all the time that come with broken health, and they want to change it. But sometimes it's too late. Sometimes it's not too late, and we can help them. And yes, there are ways of reducing cancer. And by the way, we're going to learn that heart disease is the number one killer here in Europe, just as it is in the United States. And cancer is the number two killer here in Europe. And I'm going to give you some statistics on this and what we, and how many euros we are spending every year in Europe on trying to restore some of these diseases And so people have broken health. This afternoon, we're going to talk about how we can restore their health. And so shall we bow our heads? Our Father in heaven, we praise you for who you are. You are such a great and awesome and loving God. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for caring for us so much. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a health message To not only stay healthy ourselves, to get healthy and stay healthy ourselves, but to share this with the world. We have such a message to give to the world, an exciting message, a positive message, not something that's taking something away from people, but giving them something. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to know how to uh, set up these health centers in our churches Help us to have a practical seminar this afternoon that will help people to go back and say, Yes, I can do this. I can help uh, be a part of a health ministry team. And so, Father, we thank you for caring for us, loving us, and we thank you that you're coming again. We look forward to being with you and fellowshipping with you face to face once again throughout eternity. So bless each one, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
0: This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.